Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'ils sont beaux les pieds. Hello, my love. Hi, Johnny. So, what's our topic of conversation this week? Okay, so this week um, we wanted to talk about something new, something that you've been thinking about for a long time, right? And it's kind of a recurring shadow over the Christian Atheist episodes. And then the other night, you had a sleepless night, and you said that it kind of crystallized in your mind. Yes, while I was laying there in bed, and you were sleeping soundly beside me. Oftentimes, I pray at those times, but in this particular instance, I was just sort of thinking about all that we've done over the last two years with Mm -hmm. the Christian Atheist, and it sort of hit me as a revelation. In fact, when I woke up, you said, I woke up to you saying, I had a bit of epiphany last night. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it, it, it was. It's kind of struck yeah. me that that all of the things that we've talked about kind of resolved down into a single way of thinking about something. Right. right. You said the, the thing that struck you particularly was it was in regards to the way to think of original sin. In and, fact, I, I thought to myself, if I were to write a book about this in a couple of years, mm-hmm. I might entitle the book Original Sin. Yeah. And do you want to clarify what you mean by original sin? Okay, so you said that the thing that struck you particularly was in regards to the way of thinking of original sins. Uh, yeah, and, and there are kind of two ways to think about that. I mean, original in the sense that the place where it starts historically, and also the origin in the heart of man, the structure that gives rise to sin. Mm -hmm. So original in the sense of of a genesis historically, and of a genesis in the heart of man. Okay. The nature of of original sin. All right. And in particular here, you wanted to talk about how with original sin, thinking of original sin as, go ahead, you say it. As taking the part for the whole. Right. <laughs> I've right. heard that so much now this yeah. week. Yeah, we've we've gone over <laughs> it quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, you, you suggested that maybe we do this for no compromise, and I was terrified <laughs> at the thought because I just haven't given, given it enough thought yet mm-hmm. to feel confident in the things I want to say about it. Yeah. So anyway, that's the title. That's the reason for the title, taking the part of, for the whole. That's that's what we're going to talk about. So I think um, we'll start with the idea of morality, and this is this is all something that you first encountered in the Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and you, Lewis develops the question of morality. Right in the Abolition of Man, there was a particular passage mm-hmm. that that I found to be very fruitful. And that sort of stuck in the back of my mind, but that I never fully developed and understood clearly until that night this week when Uh I was thinking about things. And suddenly it all crystallized around that thought. And and of course, there's some other places in C.S. Lewis where he talks about this too. Mm -hmm. But it was something I first encountered in The Abolition of Man. And just before we went on today to begin recording this, I found that passage in The Abolition of Man. And so I guess it's worthwhile to read it. It's a good time to read it. Go ahead. We will read this paragraph. Since I can see no answer to these questions, I draw the following conclusions. This thing which I have called for convenience, the Tao, 
and which others may call natural law or traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been, and never will be, a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. What purport to be new systems, or as they call them now, ideologies, all consist, and this is the important point, mm -hmm. all consist of fragments from the Tao itself arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole, and then swollen to madness in their isolation, yet still owing to the Tao and to it alone such validity as they possess. If my duty to my parents is a superstition, then so is my duty to posterity. If justice is a superstition, then so is my duty to my country or my race. If the pursuit of scientific knowledge is a real value, then so is conjugal fidelity. The rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. And, of course, we might say, a rebellion of the part against the whole. Right. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color, or, indeed, of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. Mm -hmm. And this, it's sort of a companion mm -hmm. to our series on the evident evidence in faith. Right. Because in that series, I make the claim that what we find in the world are the only things that we can find in the world, and that everything is built from that. And that the world is revealed to us as a whole that we cannot grasp, but that nevertheless we encounter right. as a whole, but that we see ourselves and must see ourselves when we, when we are rational creatures as mere parts of that whole right. that are localized and unable to grasp the whole. And thus we live in, mm -hmm. inhabit uncertainty. Yeah. E even ignorance in the Socratic sense, even agnosticism in the religious sense. This relation between part and whole has become now for me a way to understand almost everything that we've talked about right. from the very beginning of the Christian atheist. Right. And here Lewis makes the point that morality finds its origin, its genesis in value. And value is something that we grasp, something that we, we find in our world as human beings, as rational and empirical creatures. And that if we deny that value, then we can't ever get it back again. Right. But that morality, taken as a whole, what Kant would call the categorical imperative, mm -hmm. the ought, ethical obligation as such. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. we cover that in our series on ethics mm -hmm. in episodes 18 through 22. Right. So again, morality taken as a whole contains various sub-values, a multiplicity of 
of moral obligations arranged in a sort of ideal value hierarchy. And the only way that we can make any sort of change in a moral system is to value one thing more highly, one of the moral values more highly than another, to raise it to a level that probably it does not, it's not justifiable to raise it to. So that's kind of where I start with morality Mm -hmm. and why I started with morality and thinking about this. Right. And I'm not sure if you're ready to talk about this yet. In today's world, we've taken one subsection of morality, call it niceness, if you like, and we've made that the whole system right. of morality. Yeah, that's um, that's back up actually okay. to, to what you were reading from C.S. Lewis. All right. Yep. But first of all, you said the evident evidence and and faith. faith. Yes. If our listeners want to listen to that series, yes, it starts with number fifty-seven and goes through number 61. And we did a no compromise episode. No compromise number 11. Okay, yeah. So that's kind of like a cliff note to the series. And you can actually follow along by going back and forth, listen to the no compromise discussion, and then go and listen to another part of the series. And then it'll help you to understand it because it's kind of deep, heavy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. So Let's go back real quick to what you had read, um, just just to make it, just to clarify it a little bit. One point that Lewis makes is that there's no innovations of morality. Right. And been the same standards, steady, right. since humans been have been interacting. Right? And he calls that the Tao or the moral law. Right. And we would just call it God's law, the, the law right. of nature. Right. And in fact, Jesus, he never even brought anything new. Right. Right. Yeah. Jesus essentially said... Look, the law, some, to summarize the law, mm-hmm. love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, right. This is the broad ought, mm-hmm. Kant's categorical imperative. Yeah. Do the right thing. But what is right was and is the traditional moral matrix that human beings in all cultures throughout history have acknowledged and failed to live up to. Right. But this is essentially the moral law that human beings have always acknowledged to be the case. Right. It's not wasn't new with Jesus. It wasn't new with the Jews. It wasn't new with the Ten Commandments. It's what human beings recognized as morality, as long as human right. beings have been rational creatures. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's it's the been idea. The same through history. So, what would you say is the only innovation of late? So Lewis's point is that the only, Mm -hmm. when we talk about like making innovations Mm -hmm. in ethics, there's only one way to do it. And that's to choose one of those moral laws that we've always lived under and raise its value above the others and say, this is what morality consists of. And I would love now to launch into a discussion of height and his research mm-hmm. on that point. Yeah, but we're we're gonna get to that we'll get later there. actually. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um so Lewis makes a point that with different ages of the ethical universe, each age has its ethical pet. You said that the other day, called it the ethical pet, which is it, like you said it's not unusual for I mean for uh, man to do that. Plato demonstrated mm-hmm. that when he talks in Republic, especially in book seven and eight, I think Mm -hmm. it is, of Republic, he talks about the different political structures and how each political structure tends to value one type of thing above another. Like he called a democracy, Mm -hmm. that which values honor above all things. Mm -hmm. And so 
in a democracy, we would say that they chose the value of honor, which he would say is a value. We all right. want to have what well, the Bible itself says, what, that a good reputation is worth more than gold. Right. And that's part of the traditional morality. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's supposed to be valued above God or some other things within right. the moral structure. Right. But what a timocracy then would do would be to choose that value of honor and place it above all other values mm -hmm. in the moral structure and say that this is most important. Right. And that creates all kinds of havoc and damage. Right. And historically, I mean, that's not unusual. So historically right. that's happened, but man would give the other ethical concerns weight as well. Right. So okay. generally speaking, throughout history, when human beings have, in a social context or even as individuals, chosen one particular value and raised it up, yeah, they've also tended to still value the others. Right. But the unusualness of right now is the extent that this age has taken one specific ethical pet and raised it above everything. And, and, and like then you said, go ahead and whoa. raised it above everything, but even almost made it exclusive right? in the sense that everything else isn't right. it's like moral. An, it's like an only child. Right. <laughs> and and that the only thing that's moral is being nice. Right. Exactly. And everything else has nothing to do with morality. And so that's what you say is the right. ethical pet this right now. Right. And that's the danger of our current situation. Mm -hmm. We have raised an ethical value, which you know, none of us are going to, no, no conservative would ever say anything like being nice is not moral. Right, right. But, we would all but, acknowledge that that's part of the moral universe. But everything else has been put on a shelf. But everything else has been not, and not just, it's even worse than that. Yeah. It's like the other things that we've considered moral are now considered immoral. That's true. It, it, mm -hmm. It's like the prophet said in Isaiah, we are now taking evil for good and good for evil. Right. So, yeah. And, and you started pointing out Jonathan Haidt's research, and I, this is a good time to talk about that. We talked about it in the last three episodes of No Compromise. You called it the Haidt effect, and that would be in episodes 16, 17, and 18 of No Compromise. So, um, why don't you explain that in case, you know, in case the listeners didn't listen to that before? And Right. And, and we don't really even need to go into the Haidt effect itself. There is a specific element of Haidt's research mm -hmm. in which he shows that the left in our world has devalued everything except two of the moral foundations, right. care and harm. And the second is fairness and reciprocity, right? And he says that the left liberals, as he calls them, tend to raise those two to the level of moral concern right. and then take the other three which are moral foundations, which are in-group and loyalty authority and respect and purity and sanctity. Mm -hmm. And they actually say that those are immoral. Right. And so the 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 five foundations of morality, as Haidt understands, is we, we could quibble about that. I, I would rather say traditional morality mm -hmm. itself, right. the very structures of traditional morality. But however we want to break them up, yeah. they are raising one thing above the others and then saying that the others have no validity whatsoever. Right. And that's the danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. So we discussed taking the part for the whole morally. Now let's talk about taking the part for the whole in social structures. You say that Marxism is a classic example of taking the part for the whole, but you broke it down with me in, in two levels. And the first level is your favorite. That's Hegel. 
Okay, yes. So I would say that Hegel really instantiates the problem here. Because as we, we mentioned just a little while ago in the moral thing, historically, societies have chosen one value and raised it above the others. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like every society does this throughout history, and it presents a certain imbalance. Right. But as long as everybody is sort of acknowledging all of them at some level, it kind of balances itself out, and that can change. Mm -hmm. That particular thing that's being valued by the society can change from one society to the next over time, varied by culture and all of those other things. But all cultures tend to go back to and at least rely on the basic structure of morality that has guided humanity all throughout history. Right. And the reason for that would be, I would say, that the rational structures underlying that have been the same throughout history for humanity because mm -hmm. they've all been rational creatures. Right. The problem is that with Hegel, mm -hmm. he's changed the part for the whole in a different way. Yeah. He's done it at the very structure of rationality itself. Mm -hmm. So instead of there being two sort of modes of reasoning, human beings living in the world and sort of an Aristotelian notion of the either or of logic, yeah. the law of excluded middle and the law of non-contradiction, Hegel actually threw that out of the window, mm -hmm. got rid of the law of non-contradiction. And introduced a, a not, it's not really a new way of reasoning, yeah. but he substituted this mode of reasoning for the other. Right. And he said, essentially with the Hegelian dialectic, that contradiction is what drives us forward, that drives us to progress as a world, and that there are no static notions of rationality. So Hegel abandons any sense of objective value. Values are something that are produced rather than something that exists mm -hmm. in a transcendent realm. Right. So Hegel abandons transcendence completely. Right. God himself is not transcendent on Hegel's view. Mm -hmm. It is a developing process. Right. So what Hegel does is he takes this element of reasoning that is the reasoning of process, process reasoning, of things coming into being, and he makes that the whole. Mm -hmm. And then we get rid of the transcendental, the absolute reasoning, the absolute rationality right. that has guided mankind throughout history. Mm -hmm. So he takes the smaller part and makes that into the whole. And that's the origin of our problem. It is mm -hmm. the ideology, it is the Hegelian ideology that has taken over our society right. and is slowly destroying us. And then, as you said, secondly... Marx. On the second level is Marx, right. And Marx is a Hegelian. Right. He reasons as a Hegelian. Mm -hmm. And Marx's taking the part for the whole is something that all of us should recognize as soon as I mention it. Mm -hmm. Because it's the whole idea that everything in human relations revolves or devolves down into, into power right. relations. Right. Now, there's no doubt that rationally speaking, um, empirically speaking, many human interactions involve power. Mm -hmm. But that's never, almost never, all they involve. Right. And Hegel, yeah. Marx. Marx reduces all human interaction to power mm -hmm. interaction 
and he reduces, secondly, all of reality to material reality. This is another part for whole problem that Mm -hmm. we're involved in. And this, this particular notion of part for whole, materialism, is something that has been taken undertaken in what we today call scientism, right. another ideology that tells us that only science has a corner on truth, mm-hmm. and there's exactly. only the only type of truth that exists are scientific truths, right. and that is another thing that has gotten us into deep, yeah. deep trouble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So before we move on to examples, I want to just real quick mention that. If you, the listener, want to know more about Hegel, who for John, <laughs> we joke, is, how's this one? The man behind every dialectical cat stuck up in an antithetical tree. Does that work? <laughs> I came up with that myself. Everybody's always trying to come up with new ways to jab me about my Hegel obsession. So <laughs> <laughs> I came up with that okay. one myself. I don't know if it makes sense. <laughs> um. I did try to think through it, though. (laughs) I'll have to say it again. Okay. (laughs) The man behind every dialectical cat stuck up in an antithetical tree. (laughs) An antithetical tree. I have to think about the antithetical tree thing. Um, Every cat stuck up in an antithetical tree. Well, we'll think about it later. (laughs) But anyway, so if you, the listener, want to go back to the Christian Atheist eight-part Hegel series, (laughs) it's eight parts. Yeah, and I have a whole lot more waiting to be developed because that was it was cut short because, as you told me, I'm losing listeners while I (laughs) while I do it. But but it starts with number thirty-five. So if you start with number 35, you can go through. Um, I warn you that it's pretty heavy and it goes very deeply because, I mean, that's that was your dissertation. A lot Hegel. of what I did in graduate school revolved yeah. around Hegel, yes. So, yeah. But the series comes in short episodes. So if you can take small chunks of listening, you know, it's not like it's going to be an hour's worth of listening. Right. You can listen and to it maybe, going to work. Maybe in future we could do a few no I was compromises say, on that. Yeah, if you listen and have questions too, just ask, you know, in the comments. Or um, maybe, yeah, maybe we can do some no compromise. We can make it into the Hegel Cliff Notes series. Oh, that series. would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> we could do each episode like a Cliff Note so the listener can listen to the episode and then listen to the cliff notes. And now, and I mean, this is extremely important to know. Yeah, I think it's absolutely it's, central. It's heavy it may and, be what God has deputized yeah, me yeah. to do because of all the yeah. time I spend as an atheist really revolved around this point, trying yeah. to understand what brought our world to its knees at this level. Right. And, and the best I can do given everything I've studied mm-hmm. is to point at Hegel. Right. It's heavy and it's deep, but maybe we can make sense of it. Yeah, and maybe that would help with turning things around Mm -hmm. if that's what God wants. Right. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.